And uh, hi, John Stewart. Hi, Joe Rogan. What's going on behind you? What is all that jazz? Oh, it's all my when my kids were younger. This is their pl- I'm in the attic. Oh. So when they when they were younger, <laughs> came up here with their cousins and doodle, and then uh, I got kicked up here. It's my office now, and I'm I'm here with the bunny and the the guinea pig and the rat. Hey man, so I've been- I miss you. I miss you on TV right now. I really do. This is a perfect time for you. It's uh, yeah, it's kind of crazy that you're not hosting that show anymore. But there's so many people doing that conversation. You know, I was, I really did burn out. Like I, I felt like it's just redundant. You know, the nice thing for what you do is you get to curate and kind of be more active in to follow your own rhythm for it. I was really tied to that rhythm of the 24 hour news cycle. Right. And how fucking redundant it is and how cyclical. And at a certain point, I was like, I don't know what else to do with this. And so I didn't want to stay just because I could. I'd just done it long enough. And so I thought, well, let me just, it was just time. I thought like the audience needed a fresh perspective. I needed a fresh perspective. Like I just, I just felt done. Like I was more, I was more mad about shit than, than inspired. You know? well, I appreciate that you decided to go out at the literally at the very top, but it seems like, especially like right now, like John Oliver's killing it, and Trevor Noah's doing your show, and it's like this is this is the there's so much to mock. It's almost like an overload, and doing real commentary on politics today. In my opinion, it's almost like you're doing commentary on pro wrestling. Like, this is a rigged game, and you're out here pretending like this shit oh, makes sense. It, yeah, it's... It really I, I is. You're right. Well, it's also because that's... The economic system that's been set up around politics is the very same that Vince McMahon set up around wrestling. You create... I mean, it is a kind of, you know, kayfabe. It's a sort of like... Yeah. There are characters... You know what it's like when you're trying to produce something every day, you're going to go with kind of a boilerplate structure. So you're going to say, all right, our show revolves around you're from the right, you're from the left, whatever comes in, we're going to filter it through that. We're going to keep it producible, but it starts to, like you say, it becomes inauthentic. But the same thing would happen to me sometimes with like I'd be doing shows and, and you would know you weren't necessarily feeling the outrage of something or uh, that, that the commentary was going to be as spicy or as deep as you might want it, but you might kick it up a notch anyway because it was performative. Mm. And I always, had to, I always had to fight that instinct to not, to not give in to the gravity of like what was expected. Of, of, well, it's such, make- it's such a tightrope to walk because you're commenting, you're doing comedy on something that's actually serious. And it's great to mock the ridiculous aspects of it, but really, like, w- if you're doing the the Daily Show right now, like, we really are in a legitimately troubled time. Like, it's no, not what? it's not like a troubled time of ten years ago or eight years ago. Like, this is a real troubled time. No, and I think as that builds up, it becomes harder and harder. But I can recall, you know, people people will say sometimes, and look, I, I think there's a certain nostalgia that people view my time on the show as um and i'm not being self-deprecated i just mean you know when you walk away from something i think a, a kind of nostalgia about how you know i took a fair amount of shit while i was there 
And uh, but but the point is like Charleston happened when I was hosting that show. Ferguson happened. The Iraq War happened. Nine Eleven happened. Like Jesus, these types of things were always. And and what would happen is you started to feel like you were expected to say something profound about it mm. and knew that you didn't really have that in you at times or just that's a bar that was beyond, you know, you really did just want to help your staff get through it more than, than anything else. And so these events would come up and the weight of feeling like you had to say something meaningful in that moment for people because that's the role that either they had you know let you know that you had in their lives or that the show kind of took on you know became kind of difficult to navigate because the shit is so cyclical like man i, I could go back and and do you my 10 war on christmas bits year mm. <laughs> when that shit would flare up but like at a certain point when things like Charleston would happen or Eric Garner, like I had nothing in the tank comedically. Like all I could do was stare into the camera and just express sadness and help us. It, it's like, you know what it is? It's impotent rage at a certain point. Mm. You rage against it, but over a period of 16 years, if you feel the thing you're raging against grow stronger, Right and kind of collapse on top of you and, and you not make headway, nobody likes to piss in the ocean. Yeah. You know, or you like it, but at a certain point, if that's your job, I think it, I think people began to look at the show like it was supposed to change things. And, and that's, a hard, that's a hard place to be for, for a comedy show. Well, it's because you're reasonable. And there's not a lot of that out there, like legitimately. And like the people are like, please, you do it. Look, people are begging for The Rock to run for president. This is how desperate we are. People have asked me to do it. Look, I'm a fucking bona fide moron. You don't want me running anything. You certainly don't want me running the country. And if enough people have actually asked for that, you just know there's a feeling of desperation in the air. And... You know, when you were running that show and, and you were you were doing great comedy about real shit, and as this real shit compounds and piles up and it doesn't seem to have any effect on this real shit, all this great comedy, after a while I can understand why it would it would start to feel like what am I doing here? Like how long right. how long do you do you know who what is that guy's name who was doing the resistance? The guy was in the basement of GQ, Ken Olbermann? Keith Olbermann, sorry, oh, Keith oh, Olbermann. Oh, 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 uh, yeah. Sports character. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Little unhinged, right? He was doing this thing in the basement against Trump, and he's like, it's just days from now when Trump is going to be arrested. And I could feel that this was also kind of what he was doing. Like, he was trying to make some sort of an impact, but it just kept not working. It kept not working. Right. It felt thirsty. Yeah, and it's, it's still all chaos. And he's like, right. fuck this. And then he just walked away from it. You right. know? It seems like trying to enact change is so difficult that when actual change happens, it's one of the reasons why it happens in such a big way. It's like there were so many people bounding at the wall and pounding at this wall that when, boom, when the George Floyd protests broke through, then all of a sudden it's, we've got real change. Let's take down these fucking statues and light everything on fire. And there's this feeling 
of change and of chaos that is also representative of the fact that it takes so long to turn our cultural battleship. It's like to actually get a real turn is so hard. It's so everything stays the same no matter how mad people get. That turn, even at that point, that's still the easy part. Yes. The turn is the easy part. Like this shit's not gonna get fixed by HBO Max pulling Gone with the Wind. Like it's fine. <laughs> but like when you pull a movie nobody was planning on watching on a streaming service nobody can find, like we're still at the symbolic stage. Yeah. We're still doing the shit that is symbolic when and this is where leadership becomes such a crucial component. So you have this great awakening of energy. It has to be channeled into something lasting and meaningful. And we have to diagnose the real problem underlying this moment so that we don't make a mistake in just changing the window dressing and, and the gilding on the buildings. Yeah. Like this has to be this has to be foundational in a way that will create something lasting. And that's that's the hard part. It seems like the shift is big enough that something is going to happen in that regard. It it just seems like this shift is nothing like anything we've ever seen in our lifetime. And it's worldwide, which is really crazy. Like the George Floyd deaths sparked all these protests worldwide, which has really never happened before with anything that really has taken place in America. And it, it just seems like... There was also a lot of frustration during the bailout period of, of the COVID crisis that all these corporations were getting so much money that people got one twelve hundred dollar check, and right. then then there was no now, more talk. And it, this you don't know where the money you know. There's really no accountability even for where that money went. Right. That's a great point, Joe. Because that's so that's what I'm talking about by structural change. Like I feel like in this moment, this horrible. Uh, uh, crime and murder sparked something, but what's underlying that is not just the racial in- inequality and the inequities, but this whole idea of we build our society economically from the top down. Yes, like that's the shit that's got to change. Right. We it's have a to. Game. Well, like when when you talk when you're in a pandemic, right, and tens of thousands of people are, are dying, and then we say to ourselves, "All right, well, who are the essential workers?" Who, who are the ones that are the fabric of our society and culture that keep the the, the wheels turning and uh, uh, the trains running? Like, who are those people? Well, it turns out they're the most poorly compensated people in our society. Yeah. Because we flipped the, the paradigm. For some reason since the 80s, the investor class has gotten uh, uh, the break and the working class has gotten minimized. We've, we've devalued work while overvaluing investment. It's such and a good point. It does. I don't think we can have the structural change until we flip that. Like, fuck, man. When people talk about freedom like and, and, and liberty, what's more uh, for freedom and liberty than not having your health insurance tied to your job? Right, yeah. What kind of freedom do you have to make decisions in your life when you fear that if I take a chance, if I go for something, if I try and change my lot in life, my kids will no longer be covered by, uh, so like all the things that we built up to accept, I, I think we have to turn it over and it has to lean more. People should be able to have like 
a dignity. You you should be able to work a job and not be poor. You should be able to work yes. a job and not need food stamps. Like that's where we're fucked. We spent what? Well, how much in this pandemic? Like three trillion dollars, something like that. Four trillion, something along those lines. Who knows if a hundred million of it went to Coca Cola? Like we have no idea. Right. But you got eighty bus drivers in New York who were dead because they had to keep going. Yeah. In the middle of a pandemic. Yeah. I think you're making a really good point about what's essential as well. Uh, when we, when we found out that what the essential workers are, right? People who work at supermarkets, um, right. people who build homes, like all, all these essential and jobs. To bunker down. Yes. Like if you can't, can't afford, afford to. to right. Down, you're putting yourself in. You know, it's funny. I was talking a friend of mine named DT, who is, uh, you know, he was really like grievously wounded uh, uh, in war, right? And I was talking, we were talking about like coronavirus and I was like, I feel like I'm in fucking danger when I go out mm. and yeah, welcome to being downrange. Like, the, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? Like, yeah. the, it's just not, it's not something that we as Americans would ever consider our lives. We're, we're really sheltered in a lot of ways to what a great, a uh, vast majority of the world faces, but also what a vast majority of our own citizens face in terms of having lives that lives that they feel are built on sand yeah. as opposed to granite. And so his point was like, yeah, you know, that's what it feels like when you're in a war, but I signed up for that. But like bus drivers and grocery store workers, like they had to fucking decide, like, I need this money more than I need to protect my life and and maybe the health of my family what a terrible position to have to be in and unprecedented and and we're ill prepared for it and it, it really did highlight what's essential though which is gets back to your point about this idea of uh income equality like people will balk at that like hey this is a game if you want to figure it out figure out how to make more money invest and do this and become a banker and you fucked up and you wanted to be an artist or you fucked up and you wanted to be a a, a carpenter you should have been a you know whatever and but what they don't understand or don't consider is when shit hits the fan like it did with the covid crisis you recognize like hey all that stuff is nonsense if someone doesn't take out the garbage all that stuff is nonsense if you don't have health care all that stuff is not none of that money means anything if the fabric of society deteriorates to a point where literally everybody has to stay in their home and you can't work and that's what happened and it really flipped the whole thing on its head because we we had to consider survival we had to really consider survival instead of just existence we were saying oh my god we have to protect ourselves from this viral viral attack and what it makes you realize is how much money it takes to ante up to the american way of life what i mean by that is like if you want to buy, if you just want to buy in to play a hand, right? What's your ante? Well, now they say you got to go to college. So you're talking about a $200,000 ante. Yeah. To get in the fucking game. Right. To get a job and, when you get out where you're not going to make a fraction of that every year. So you're going to be behind the eight ball for the rest of your life. Right. Now think about, you know, uh, black people not being able to build equity and wealth through generations right. of, you know, government policy that excluded them from. You know, from whether it's the Homestead Act or the Federal Housing Administration or the GI Bill, you know, all these government interventions 
socialism, if you will, entitlements, if you will, were made to help white families build equity, right? Over generations. Black people were explicitly excluded from that. So add that on top of the amount of money that you go in and you start to see the hole that we've dug for people. Yeah. And if we don't address that hole, I don't care how many fucking comedy sketches we pull and how many things go like we we're not doing anything. Yeah, we and haven't that, addressed the hole that exists from being 150 years removed from slavery, which is crazy. That's not that's a a, a, a blink in time. It's nothing. And how crazy is it that like and you always, I always hear it from like the butt people. They're like the George Floyd thing. Yeah, that was terrible. But and they, as soon as they say the butt, I'm like, no, no butt, no. But he wasn't an angel. No, but you know, doesn't he matter. was. It doesn't matter. And when you're upset that people are pulling down Confederate statues, like people have been begging for that since they got th- those things got put up in the 1920s to really lock in Jim Crow. Like those things aren't there. They're not memorials uh, to the dead. They're hagiography to a war for slavery. Like, when we shot the movie down south, man, so I I saw these monuments, you would think they would say, like, here's a statue of uh, uh, Robert E. Lee. This motherfucker thought (laughs) to to keep people slaves. And then we built this thing in the 20s to make black people kind of afraid so that they knew they couldn't take... But it doesn't say that. It said this, this great man, like... Of course, people are going to pull them down because they've been begging for us to do something about it for a hundred years. It's also the origins of those. A lot of those statues were actually put up during the civil rights movement, and they're cheaply made. They were put up as a, a, a middle finger to the civil no rights question. movement. No, no question. Yeah, Look, but but we need something at a like. There has to be a process. You know, I always think about like what South Africa did. There has to be a painful lead process that allows us, because I, I still think to this day, and I don't know how, how your experience with this is, but like, I still think there's a large swath of, you know, white people in society who feel like they blame black people for not being able to get out of this hole that we put them in or that the government put them in, but they think it's a problem of culture and virtue. Like, Hey man, if they would just uh, pull their pants up and uh, talk different, you know, they wouldn't have such a hard time. Hey, why don't you just work harder? Well, that's a, it's a ridiculous perspective, and it's also not based. On, you don't have a, anyone who would think like that doesn't understand how human beings develop and grow. If you have someone, it's widespread. Yeah. I would say it's widespread. Yeah, it's 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 a dangerous narrative. Whenever yep. you blame people for their circumstances, if their circumstances are grossly out of their control and really severely limit their progress. And mm-hmm. that exists also for, if you want to talk about coal mining populations in no Kentucky, what? it's the same shit. It's people no that we don't all start out at the same starting block. So all you pull yourself up by your own bootstrap motherfuckers, you're lucky you have arms. Okay, there's people out there born with no arms. Like, we should all be thinking of ourselves in this country as a community, not as a bunch of people in competition with each other. We're all piling our money together every year. We throw our taxes into the mix to try to take care of the infrastructure and the government and the housing and all the, all the different things that get paid for by our taxes. We're a community, man, and we're not thinking like a community. We're thinking like a bunch of people that don't want other people to uh, have the same shot in life. 
that's a but I, I think you struck on something though that's very important in all this and that is a theory of limited resources like yes. a lot of the conflict between what you would consider like the, the more nativist wing of American politics and, and the more progressive side is this idea of resource guarding. Yeah. We're gonna, they're going to take, I work my fucking ass off. I play by the rules and they're going to take all my labor right. and they're going to pour it into these people. And I do think we have to address that idea that like, we're here to build equity. Let's all get together. And the project of this next generation is to build a stronger foundation, a, a granite bearing for everyone to stand on so that there's a few people standing on Mount Everest and everybody else is in sand and quicksand yeah. isn't the way that we run the society. And, and think of these programs not as entitlements, but investments. If yeah. we invest in dignity of work shit and start building that up, well, food stamps and welfare start to go away. Yeah. Because we're building something more substantial. We built a great middle class in the 50s for white people. We have to do the same now for the country. And and for and also reassure, you know, people who are resentful of that, that they're not being left behind either. That nobody is saying, and your lives are fucking cake. It's not like it's gonna change your life that much either, man. This this mentality that oh Bernie Sanders like when I was a supporter of Bernie Sanders when he was running. I got pushback from people that were like, uh, so you want to give your hard-earned money more of it away to the government, and you think the government's going to solve this? My, my perspective was, if you just looked at it this way, if you could give, let's just get crazy, if you could give 25% more money to taxes, but the world would be 50% better. Right. Wouldn't you want to invest in that? Like, I understand that people are check to check. I understand. But if, if people like me, people that earn a, a good amount of money are the ones who are going to be hit the hardest. If you wanted a better world, wouldn't you be willing to invest some of your money into that better world? And if that money goes to making sure that no one has to do this in the future and that we, we develop this better Com these better communities and these places that have been fucked for decades you want you don't want that you don't want a, a better world for your children you want you don't want a safer world. what do you want to do die with all this money in the bank like it's crazy it's, also, it's a question of you know when you look at the greatest anti-poverty program we've ever put in place it's social security now the flip side of that is what they'll say is that the problem with some of this is they don't trust the mechanism by which that money is going to be invested right? of course because they've been sold to some extent, a little bit of a lie that that this trickle down theory. So every administration that comes in is going to stimulate the economy. They all do it. We don't have a free market. The Fed right now is driving so much money into stocks. You're talking about zero interest rates, negative interest rates. Right. They're driving everything away from bonds and, and savings so that the stock market, which for some reason, we've come to look at like a pulse oximeter of the nation, which it's it's not. It's, you know, oh, my God, we lost 300 Dows today. Like, we've come to look at it like it's our temperature. Yeah. And so everybody's going to stimulate the economy. So what did, what? let's look at what Trump did. So $1.5 trillion tax cut, right? Overwhelmingly, though, it went to people who already have a shit ton of money. 
And then we cut the corporate tax rate from 100, I think it was 35 down to 21, right? Supposedly they were going to reinvest it, but they mostly did buybacks. So they're increasing their investor wealth through that as well. So you're talking about trillions of dollars of stimulus, right? That are just going to that same theory. Take those trillion dollars and let's invest. Let's stimulate the economy, but not from up there, from down here. Let's right. do in- Let's take that and fucking Marshall plan our country and, and build it so that it's sturdy on the legs. You know, you know, you're a fighter, sturdy on the legs. If you're not sturdy on the legs, you got nothing. My idea is we should get Dick Cheney involved and we should hire Halliburton to fix up the inner cities like it did all the places we bombed in Iraq. Give him uh, some no-bid contracts, pour that money back into the community. <laughs> I mean, I'm joking about Halliburton, but it know, is a business. There's something there. Well, I had a thing, you know, we're trying to do this thing for veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan uh, who've gotten sick from burn pits. Are you familiar at all with, with burn pits? No, what is it? So... In the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war, I mean, for, this will go back generations, but in Iraq and Afghanistan, a lot of the uh, hired contractors to dispose of the detritus of war, they would build these sometimes 10 acre, 20 acre pits. Everything would go into them from uh, uh, mess waste to hazardous materials to computers oh. to farm, everything. They light it with jet fuel oh. and they burn. So now you got guys that are downrange that are also down. I mean, they're living. They're basically camping out yeah. in a toxic waste dump, right? Oh, and it's an air incinerator. So they come home, and you're starting to see pulmonary issues, cancer issues. These guys are they're dying. Yeah, and they're not be. It's not being. A, they have to advocate against the government. So we're trying to put together, working with this uh, uh, team coalition, wounded warrior groups, and 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 people, uh, VSOs and groups like that to address this legislatively similar to what was done for the, the 9-11 community, right? So I thought, because it's always about money, you know, we always have money for war, but we almost never have money to pay for what are the absolutely could have seen coming a mile away consequences of what our veterans face when they come back, right? We yeah. don't take care of when they're when they're out when they're out of sight they're out of mind and so my idea was you have all these profiteers raytheon halliburton all these groups make them kick in 10 percent big a contingency in war so that when these guys go home and the government backs away there is money there to take care of what is the natural uh, uh damage that's done to these people in the name of fighting for our country so that they don't and their families. I mean, these people have to become their own lawyers. They have to go in front of medical boards and they have no support. Their families are oftentimes caring for them, whether they have health issues or traumatic brain injury or, uh, uh, you know, other kinds of invisible wounds. And they're kind of hung out to dry. Yes. Not kind of very much. So, um, right. 
you know, the UFC uh, had a program back in the day where we were uh, working with the Intrepid Center for Excellence to work with uh, traumatic brain injury patients and to raise money for them. And we were doing this uh, UFC fight for the troops to raise money for it. And th- what got me sick was how, how is it that we have to do this? Like, how is right. it that this isn't something that's taken care of in the budget, clearly in advance? You're, right. you're blowing people up, and you're, you're, you're not preparing for people to come back injured? You're sending young, right. brave women and men to die for their country or, or risk severe brain damage, and you don't have enough money set aside to treat them when they return? I'm like, that's insane. Everybody thinks that soldiers come back and they've got health care for life. No, they don't. No, they don't. You, you've got a five-year window, but if you get something that they deem was not service-related, so you could have been sleeping next to an open-air burn pit. Oh. Uh, uh, there, there's a guy in, in Texas we work, we work with his wife, Rosie and, and Leroy Torres, who's literally like his case wouldn't be they, – they denied his case in front of the Texas Supreme Court. Yeah, it's evil. This this evil. absolute intention to deny health care, and it goes right. all the way back to oh, Desert I'm, Storm. You remember? You remember the whole to Vietnam? Yes, yes. Are still fighting the government over Agent Orange, right? And still being denied. Yeah, but yeah, bunkers. It's crazy, and the depleted radiation sickness that people were getting from uh, the Iraq the War. Right, and and the guys that went, you know, that that K two base, yeah. that was in, I think it was Uzbekistan, and it was a toxic weight. Like these soldiers literally had like irradiated tar on their boots, yeah. sick as shit, and they can't get, you know, there's blue water horizon. There's, I'm telling you, like every, <sighs> or inevitably, and they're always told the same thing: Hey, we don't have the science yet, and you know, it's going to take us twenty to twenty five years on the science. But you do have the science because you got the science from Vietnam. Like, yeah, it's jet fuel burn at, at the trade center. So, like, the science is in. Use that science. Like, stop fucking with these people and help them. Yeah, the jet fuel burn at the trade center is another excellent example of, of first responders, right? That were terribly sick, and and many many of them died because of the fumes and 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 people in the res, the surrounding areas. In fact. Um, Donna Summers died of lung cancer, and she oh, really? lived near there. Yeah, I don't doubt that it's related. It could be related, but it's, it's many people did. Jimmy's a drugger. He was a cop, and he got really sick. I mean, those guys developed the the pile cough like a day into the search and rescue. But Jimmy's a drugger. He he gets sick, and they kept trying to tell him that a first it was in his head, and then it was it had nothing to do with where you were and, and working on the pile in 9-11. And then they tried to say, like, it's from snorting drugs. They fucking, you know, ruin this man's reputation as he's dying. He dies. They do an autopsy in his lungs. Everything you could possibly imagine from a pulverized building. Jesus. Asbestos, limestone, cyanide, like, oh. ass. Like, it was an utter disaster and and they just keep fighting people and they're doing the same thing to these veterans now with with the the burn pits and it's you know the whole thing's just got to stop that there's got to be a presumption uh for these illnesses so that these guys don't have to fight so hard to get 
you know, disability or healthcare. I think al- along the same lines we're talking about reform of the police department, there has to be some reform of the healthcare system that deals with veterans because it seems to be just this long history of doing it a certain way to save the most money possible and right. the, the idea that these guys are sacrificial anyway. You know, they're sending them off to potentially die if they come back alive we you know we do our ver- they do our their very best to not treat them and to not spend any more money on them and it's right. it's sick right. it's amazing we have so many guys that are still patriotic that still want to go and do this considering the fact that they're treated so poorly when they return yeah and they lose you know listen being in the military is isolating in the first place it's just not that you know it's only less than one percent i think of the population Put on top of that, when you get out, you know, you're used to being with a unit, you're used to that camaraderie, you're used to uh, all pulling for the same, you know, working as a team. Well, now you're removed from your unit. And if you're hurt, that's even further isolating, you know, uh, uh, and, and in that moment to have to then you're, you're worried about your future, your family's future. And in that moment, when you when that's when the government should step in and go, hey, man, we're, you fulfilled your service to us. You fulfilled that covenant. We will fulfill that covenant to you. You know, we will send that, that, you know, we'll do the right thing. Right. And they, and they do the opposite. They do the opposite. It's some of the shit is so simple and fair and obvious. And you do wonder like, how has the system become so corrupt and corroded that we can't anymore as a people do the right thing? Just do the right fucking thing. How did that, how did we get here? Well, I think, again, this speaks to what's going on in this country in terms of revolt. That we, we realize, like, all this stuff, whether you're talking about the healthcare system, whether you're talking about police reform, whether you're talking about impoverished communities that are stricken with crime and drugs, it's not changing under the normal conditions like something has to happen and something has to happen in a big way to change it and all these things need to be addressed right health care of soldiers needs to be addressed reform of the police reform of these communities like it has to be addressed if you're going to spend trillions of dollars to bail out these large corporations you gotta you, you've got to work on these other problems too you can't just ignore them because they're not the ones who are funding your campaign and that's, but that's a huge issue. And that's the thing that's got to stop. Look at even 2008, right? So we have this enormous uh, economic collapse in 2008. The housing market sinks and these uh, uh, derivative mortgage uh, things go down. And the world economy grinds to a halt. Thousands of people lose their job, foreclosures all over the place. So they come in and they pump billions of dollars into the organizations that sunk the fucking ship in the first place. Yeah. That's where the money goes. And I remember asking uh, the treasury secretary at the time, you know, this is a mortgage question, right? Cause they, the derivatives made it like the geometric problem. So if they're bundling mortgages and 8% of those mortgages go underwater, it sinks the derivatives market, which is trillions of dollars as opposed to billions of dollars. So I said, you know, with all that money, what if you just made those mortgages that were underwater whole? Because the moment you do that, doesn't that fix your derivative problem? Don't you, haven't you just made, and plus then people get to keep their houses. And what he said to me was, you can't do that because of moral hazard. Huh? So moral hazard is a theory that 
you can't incentivize bad behavior. So what he's saying is the people that took out mortgages on their homes that went underwater, that's their fault. So you can't bail them out because that would be sending a hazardous message morally about the economy. So I said, what's the moral hazard of then get making the people that actually blew up the economy whole again? What's that? How is that not moral hazard? And he said, the plane was on fire and we had to land it. Wow. But they lit the plane. They were the ones who lit the plane on fire. How are you? You're rewarding them for that. Yeah. Yeah. It's. I've I've heard both sides of that argument. I've heard the argument that, that no nothing's too big to fail. Let it fail. And then I've heard the argument that if it did feel fail, it'd be so catastrophic. But I'm saying it wouldn't have failed. So it was a failure because they bundled. Yes. Oh yeah. Yeah. They did it but, all to themselves. But if you made the mortgages at the base of that, okay. So let's say 10% of the mortgages were underwater. But, you know, so let's say you had a $200,000 mortgage and now the house is only worth $150,000. So instead of giving a million dollars to AIG at the top, give $50,000 to that mortgage, bring it into line with its value. Suddenly that thing's not underwater anymore. It's like putting ballast into a ship that's sinking. Put the ballast in. The ship comes up rather than just saying, all right, we'll buy you another fucking ship. That almost <laughs> seems too logical, though. <laughs> that's <laughs> right. That's kind of part of what's the problem with but, all this. But that's what I was saying. Like, yeah. when you say, oh, that's moral hazard. I was just like, I don't even know what to do with that. Incentivizing bad behavior doesn't count when you're the ones who tank the economy. I mean, it's not, it's like what you're talking right. about today. Like if someone tried to say that these small businesses that are going under because of the COVID sanctions, because everybody's been locked down, rather, if if those people need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, it's a great example why that analogy sucks. Because like there's nothing to do, man. You can't work. There's nothing. You, you like what do you want them to do? There's no opportunity. It's everything shut down. If you go under at this time, it's right. not your fault. It's one of the rare if times. If I'm the government right now, here's something I could do. That's like again, like it seems like. A simple solution which is like just suspend and extend yeah so the country shut down right what's people's oftentimes biggest worry my rent or my mortgage yeah suspend and extend you know what we're gonna do a six month suspend nobody is gonna be and if the landlords need to be helped out that's where we'll focus we'll make sure that the landlords don't go under from uh, having to pay too much in taxes or having to pay too much in repairing but Attack the problem at its core, which is people's insecurity about they're unemployed. They have to still pay the rent and their mortgage or other bills. Let's take a big chunk of their nut. Oftentimes for people, mortgage and rent is, is one of the biggest nuts. Just fucking say like, because clearly we have the, the wherewithal and the money. We're suspending and extending. Everybody like give people a chance to breathe just for a moment and for the landlords i'm not trying to dick them over like give them some kind of a uh, uh, rent uh, a real estate tax break or some uh, operating expense keep everybody you know what? it's almost like like you're a patient on a ventilator like let's just keep everybody a fucking live yeah till we get past this moment because they keep saying well we gotta you know we gotta uh, uh, reopen the economy 
we are the economy. Right. There is no corporations may be people, but they corporations still can't catch COVID. We can. So I don't understand why they don't do something that seems simple and addresses like a real concern, grassroots on, on the on the floor. Again, you're speaking too logically. <laughs> I think it's uh, it's just a it's such a difficult time too politically because the the ideas get segmented into left or right, right? Like even the ideas of how to address COVID, how to address the economy, how to address all the, the everything becomes politicized, and it's I, I mean, that's that's terrible. You know, that's unfortunate. Yeah, that's it's really unfortunate because well, it's even. Yeah, it's it's it shouldn't be that way, and I'm not sure how it started that way, and it's really unfortunate. There's got to be more emphasis on testing, and there's got to be more emphasis on showing people how to keep their immune system healthy, and then recognizing people that can't do that and doing what we can to protect them. You're gonna and, wear a mask now. Yeah. Joe Rogan's saying he's saying out loud, "I'm gonna wear a mask now." I've now always on. been. I, I was fucking with Bill Burr to try to get him to rant. People think I'm really serious about that. I was like, what, are you going to wear a mask? And I, I see Bill over there steaming. I'm like, here he goes. Here he goes. <laughs> like, I wear a mask whenever I go out in public because it's the law. And I don't want anybody yelling at me. But also, um, though, when you... Side note. I get tested. Excuse me. I get tested all the time, too. What's On a side note, what? How great is Burr? He's the best. I love him. He's Just, so funny. He's so funny and so prolific. But here's the thing that I almost love even more. He'll just send me like a video of like a great drummer that he loves. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I took it up, but he's really good. But uh, I, I just love that dude. He's so good. He's great, and I, I love getting him wound up. That's what yeah. I was doing with the whole mask thing. And people right, think right, right. I was like really arguing. You shouldn't wear a mask, or you're a bitch. God, it's. But that's also the problem with sound bites on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. It's you know it exists. It's the content factory, and you know. Anybody that creates content, you know, then that goes out into the world. And look, they're looking for, for, for eyeballs too. And that's why I always feel like, like I, I take shit, but I can't complain about it because that's part of the game. I do, right. That's part of the game. It's what I do for a living. So like when people say political correctness, it's, it's overwhelming. I, I just say like, Hey man, it's just other people pushing back and getting to say their shit. And that's, Exactly what they should be doing. The yes. internet has democratized, you know, outrage. And there's more speech now than there's ever been before in the history of the world. Like, we all know. You know what it's like? That What's the movie with uh, Mel Gibson where he, he knows what women, uh, what women yeah. think? Yeah. Right. So he had ESP. Twitter and the internet is just, we all have developed ESP. And now we know what everybody is thinking. It's all, every day, we're just bombarded by what everybody's thinking. Well, you're also bombarded by the people that spend the most time doing it. Because there's a lot of mentally unwell people that spend their entire day camped out on Twitter having arguments. And if you want to venture into that world and risk your consciousness and your health, your, me your literal mental health, by communicating in this really crude manner with text messages and, you know, arguing over semantics with people that you don't even know, it's, it's right. a terrible way to exist are you on twitter do you have a no, twitter account? i have a twitter account but i don't read it it you goes no I, I post things on inner on instagram they go to twitter occasionally i'll post things on twitter but i don't read it 
It's just right. too toxic, man. I, I get it, you know, and I know when I've fucked up and I know when people are right. mad at me when it's legit and valid and I know when they're mad at me for nonsense. And I I am my worst self-critic, so I, I don't need other people yelling at me. I, I know I, what I did wrong. I, I stay clear. I, that's healthy. I think that's the only approach you can have in this environment. I think it's a healthy way to look at it. And, you know, I always try and keep myself like you figure when, when people are coming at you, there's probably going to be something constructive in there. Yes. And sometimes I have the energy to like find it. And sometimes I'm just like, I, I really can't do this. Today. Yeah. Sometimes you can't do it, but yeah, there's value in criticism. It's very important, but not too much. It's like anything else. Like you, there's value in a little bit of snake venom. You develop a tolerance, <laughs> but if you get a big fat dose, you're dead. And it's in, in many ways, it's the same with interacting with people that are upset with you. There's going to be people that are upset with everybody for no reason. No matter what the story is in the news, even if it's clear cut to you and I, there's going to be someone who has a violent opposition to that idea. It doesn't mean they're right. And it doesn't mean you're right. It just means people have a lot of different fucking ways of looking at the world. And if you want to exist in conflict in perpetuity, stay on right. Twitter and stay on Twitter all day long and just argue with people. I don't want to do that. You know, and again, it's not that I don't have any room for improvement. It's not that I don't appreciate or accept or recognize the value of criticism because I definitely do. It's that it's not healthy. It's not healthy for me. It's not. It's, it'll, it could directly affect the kind of content I put out. It's not good. That, that's what I was about to say. Do you feel like one of the hardest things to do is to maintain your kind of creative barometer so that you don't let those kinds of things when you feel like they're not constructive, pull you too far to uh, the outrage world or some other things, like to maintain that. And that's why I think it's good, like w what you do in terms of conversation, like you basically say, you know, I'm gonna do long form because that, you know, feels like, at least from my perspective, the healthiest form Yeah, is, is conversation. But is even in that case, people will take long form edit things right. out of context and then it becomes the same problem that we have right. with Twitter and with everything else. You get these little sound bites, these little video clips and you don't understand the full context of the conversation or what the, what was actually said and then people get outraged at that. It's you know, it's right. uh, we are living in a very strange time and I believe it's an adolescent stage of communication and I think it's going to give exactly. our frustrations for this are going to give birth to a, a better form. And I think one of the things that podcasts uh, what, what it's in response to and the, the popularity of the long form is in response to people being upset with like these traditional late night talk show things where there's a window here with one guy on the right and a window here with a guy on the left and there's a person in the center and they're yelling at each other and then you cut to commercial and you don't really feel like things got resolved so the response to that it's where it's people theater. are gravitating it's three it's theater yeah i think there's, there's the same was it hard for you you know at, when we came up as comics it was also at that point like it was sort of a gladiatorial environment you know and i remember you know the boston scene uh you know, it was always like, that's a tough scene. Yeah. And you'd come up and it was kind of gladiatorial and, but you had that audience and it, and you develop kind of that thick skin. Is it hard to then make that switch in your mind to this different form that's so much more considered, so much less about uh, uh, conquering the stage? Yeah. It is about being open. And is that something that for you, what, what was the switch for you from those two forms? Because that's, that's an interesting switch. 
Well, in the beginning, there wasn't a very good switch. You know, it's like one of the reasons why the early episodes sucked. It's like I didn't know what I was doing, and I didn't think anybody was listening. It was just for fun. And there was a lot of just hanging out with comics and just doing what comics do if we were at a diner somewhere, just talking shit and making each other laugh. But we were doing it and videotaping it. And then along the way, I started interviewing actual interesting people and talking to them and having conversations and not... I don't, you know, I, there's a place for comedy, and then I, I don't, I, I make a really big point in never trying to force comedy into places where it doesn't belong. That's, the, I do that also with the UFC. When I do commentary, I'm never funny. There's no reason to be. It's not what my job is, you know? And then when I'm doing a conversation with someone, I just try to talk. I don't try to be a comic. I don't try, I just, I'm a human. I want, I want to know what they're talking about and I want to, I want to get them to expand upon their ideas as best as they can. And I want to be engaged. That's what all, all I'm trying to do. So it wasn't that, it wasn't that was a big transition. It was that I had to learn how to do this thing that I didn't right. think was a skill. I thought that like being on the radio or podcasting, you know, was just talking. That's what I thought. It's like you're just talking. And then I realized, no, no, no. You're talking in a way that people want to listen. You're making it entertaining. You're keeping your ego in check. You're, you're moving the conversation along while not being overbearing. You're not letting people ramble too much where it's boring you. You got to figure out how to juice things up and push them and massage them and move them around. Oh. It's a skill. And I didn't think it was a skill. And, uh, you know, and. Like I said, that's one of the reasons why my early episodes suck so bad. There wasn't even any consideration to the fact that people were listening. It was just fun. We were just doing it for ourselves. And then along the way, and this also speaks to the value of criticism, I read a bunch of criticism about what was wrong with the podcast. You know, that I talk, we talk over each other, or I talk too much, whatever it was. And I took it to heart. And I would uh, think about it. I'd go, okay, i got to consider that people are listening to this. This isn't just what I want to say. It's what I want people to hear. And I, how I want it, just like stand-up, you want the joke to easily enter into a person's mind. So it's so well written and so perfectly timed that the audience goes, John Stewart's got this. I'm just going to sit back and let him take my thoughts on a ride. And right. that's that's what really good stand-up is. I mean, it's one of the reasons why Dave was able to do that uh, 846 special that way, yep. where he has this long, drawn-out story with so many important points and a few laughs thrown in there, but so mm -hmm. engaged. And it's he's so you, – you just go with him. You just let him take you. Just let him take you. And that's that's – everything whether it's uh, someone giving a speech or you know i mean even like just almost every conversation that we have it's there's yeah. a skill to it that we're, we're not taught i mean you know what it's like to talk to someone where they're not even really talking to you they're just kind of waiting for them to talk they're waiting for you to finish so they can talk about themselves that's that's a real problem with people and communicating and i had to learn how to i learned how to be a better communicator really and also how to be authentically you because there is now like i think the best measure sometimes of of art or of stand-up or those things is when you you hear things or see things that are uniquely that person like nobody could have delivered 846 the right. day right like, perfect yeah it just authentically uniquely him your voice that you develop authentically uniquely and that's a hard thing to develop it's funny because i feel like that's what stand-up helped do for me. Mm. Because when you do that in front of an audience, 
even I'll give like Boston as an example, you know, when we'd be working Knicks, you'd do that, that run of Knicks is like the Framingham and the other ones, you know, mm-hmm. but go to the, the one in, in central Boston first. And I can remember I hadn't played the room before and I was, I was a young comic and I just done Letterman. I think I'd gotten a, a, like a big break. And so the guys at Knicks booked me on that run to be uh, a headline of my first run on those Knicks properties. So I came into uh, Knicks and uh, they were just going to throw me up on stage. And what they did was so such a learning experience because you kind of think like, I'm on Letterman. I'm just going to walk into this place. I'm coming up from New York, hotbed of comedy. I'm going to fucking strut my stuff at Knicks. And they threw up before me. I think it was... Lenny Clark, <laughs> Kenny Rogerson, and Sweeney. <laughs> and I, I walked down the room, and it was like Dresden. Like, they had so blown that room out with brilliance. And then it was like, and uh, from New York, a Letterman guy, John Stewart. And it was, it was like they were clubbing a baby seal. Like, I was just, I was helpless. Man. They did that to everybody. But so like wonderfully humbling, yeah. And you, because it makes you realize in the moment, like, all oh, right, I've got a shit ton of work to do. Yes, like Mark yes. Kenny just murder it with brilliant shit, and they're just like, oh boy. Yeah, if you want to be humbled, that the Boston comedy scene <laughs> in the late '80s and the early '90s, that was the place to be. Yeah. It was a yeah. great place to develop too, though, because it, it l- lets you know. I mean, you never want to be overconfident. It's one of the worst things you could be in anything. And you never want to be lazy. If you're, especially when you're delivering something to people that are actually paying to see you talk, right? right. Like, man, there's such a, such a important connection that you have to those people. It, it's got to, you've got to do the work. It's got to be your best version. And if you're not doing that and they know you're not doing that, they get angry at you. It's like, it's the anger that an audience has towards a comic that's bombing is very difficult to describe. <laughs> you know, like they're mad. They can do that too. They can talk too. Like, why the fuck are you talking? Like if, right. if you're not on, and you know, there's real valuable <laughs> lessons to that as a comic yeah. coming up that you do apply to whether it's podcasting or hosting any kind of a show. Yeah, no, there's a fragility to it. And if you don't stay on top of it, you know, the energy of that room, it is it is a, a bear that will get up and walk out of the room uh, if you're not careful. But it's interesting also, though, now, so you're known now. Stand up when you're known versus stand up when you're not is also a different experience. Because you walk into a room when they know you, and there is, you know, you don't have to be as sharp if you don't want to. because of that. And it, that's a discipline as well. Yeah. To kind of make sure that you're not coasting on maybe some goodwill that they had for you based on something else. That's very dangerous. That's one of the reasons why the comedy store is so important because when I go there, it's not my crowd. It's my crowd and, you know, uh, Anthony Jeselnik's crowd and Ali Wong's crowd. And like, there's a lot of people there coming to see everybody. And so, and you're going on after all these murderers. So it's when you're, when you're in that kind of an environment, you sort of have to dot your I's and cross your T's. You got to do the work. Right. Are you still really involved? Like, because in, for me, you know, once I did started the show and once I had kids, like, I don't really get to the clubs anymore. So it, it almost feels like old timers day when I show up. Like, <laughs> he's going to, you know, uh, 
but I wish I, I, I wish I could get out there more. And every night it'd be, you know, it'd be like eight o'clock and I'd be like, ah, oh, shit, I should just drive up to the city and go work the cellar. And then uh, my wife will be like, bachelor in paradise is on. All right. Just- uh-huh. Yeah. Well, the way I had been setting it up at the store was all my sets would be after 10 o'clock for the most part. Except rarely. Rarely I would do an 8 o'clock show. So everybody would be in bed. So I'd leave my house, and my set wouldn't be probably until 11. So I'd leave my house, and everybody would be asleep. And it was perfect. And I just and I, that's also my favorite time to write, too. I would come home from the store, and everybody would be asleep, fire up a joint, and sit in front of the laptop and come up with some ideas. And it's, I had it down to a science before the, the, the lockdown. Right. How's the lockdown? Has the lockdown messed with your routine? Are you a creature? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I mean, for my comedy routine, it certainly has. I don't know. I mean, I'm doing my first shows this weekend in Houston. I don't know what the fuck's going to happen. I don't know if I know how to do it anymore. It's going to be very strange. Houston is like you. You you couldn't go more into the belly of the beast. Like right now, yeah. Like it's like being on the surface of Venus. Like it's off the charts with this thing. Yeah, I'm gonna go on stage with two bottles of Lysol and just. You know how girls do that thing when they spray perfume and they walk through it? Right, I'm going right. to do that with Lysol on stage. A little bit on the... <laughs> I mean, I think it's really critical to strengthen your immune system, and I do a lot of things to do that. And I think that that's something that people need to really concentrate on, and I really wish that our elected officials were talking more about that and having speeches with doctors and... You're doing the opposite. You yeah. remember Michelle Obama tried to do, like, tried to put kale... In something and everybody was like what the i'm yeah. sorry we're going, we're going back to tater tots fuck that, that? they're like wait do? <sighs> yeah i mean just the science on vitamin supplementation and how critical it is for your immune system particularly vitamin d that is that could literally save lives and that knowledge is not secret that well, knowledge is out there you did the those those episodes on the game changers the uh with james Woods, and that was it was fascinating to watch because i i watched that movie and, you know, nutrition is also like diet is such an important part of what we do to ourselves that we that we don't think. And especially in a time of COVID mm-hmm. where so many people, like you say, like when you see what this does to people with type one diabetes or, or uh, with, with other kinds of, uh, you know, conditions that might be caused from either poor diet or lack of access to, uh, you know, healthier options and things like that. You realize like, shit, we've put ourselves in a very vulnerable position. Yeah, very vulnerable. But how we eat. Andrew Schultz had a really good point. He said this this pandemic highlighted the vulnerabilities both in our economic system and mm-hmm. in our health system, like the way we are as human beings. The what who who's vulnerable? The obese people, people with diabetes, older folks. I mean, it 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 highlights all these issues where you know we we really need to concentrate on for the future. If you want more people to survive this, there is there are strategies that can be implemented, and we really we really need to talk to people about. Just being normal stuff, being dehyd- being uh, well hydrated, making sure you're not dehydrated, well rested. Um, right. Teach people meditation techniques. It's not hard to learn some breathing exercises that have been actually proven to increase your immune function. It's not hard to teach people about vitamin D and, and supplementing it if you can't go outside. So how do you get people then to, to take action? Because here's the other thing you remember, like people's lives are hard. Yeah. When you're talking about like what we talked about earlier, like economic inequality you know it's hard to go into an area where they feel like shit i don't know where my next meal is coming from and be like 
So here's what we're going to do. We're just going to sit and breathe quietly for five minutes. And everything's right. going to, you know, it, it's a really difficult, it's like hierarchy of needs, you know, yep. uh, uh, how do you, how do you work into the idea that those types of theories are actually important to the betterment of like, and the stability of the larger part of their life when they're fighting so hard just to stay afloat. Yeah. It's a, that's an interesting point. And uh, I think what you have to do is it, it has to be, first of all, told by people who are doing it successfully. So people that are doing it that like maybe were struggling with their immune system and turned it around and got healthier, like those people are the ones that the people that are in a bad position right now, they really respond to when it comes to, like, there's an emotional connection with, so if you see some guy and he's on the cover of Men's Health Magazine and he's ripped and he starts talking about fitness, you're like, get the fuck out of here. I can't relate to you. I'm never going to look like that. But if you see someone who is in this, the situation that you're in currently and they turned it around. You already look like that. Well, not me, but uh, listen, I've been working out my whole life. I've never stopped. But if someone is fat, I'm talking from their perspective, and they see some guy who's really thin and chiseled, then it's not going to make sense to them that they could ever be like that. But if they see someone, there's a lot of really fantastic photos and, and, and Instagram and Facebook pages online where you can get inspiration from someone who actually stuck to a diet, actually stuck to an exercise routine, and then speaks really well about how much it improved the way they feel, their emotions, their depression, all the aspects of their life. And that's, I think, one of the more... Like David Goggins is a great example of that. I use him all the time because he's this incredibly inspirational guy who was, is a Navy SEAL. And at one point in time, he was 300 pounds. He was drinking milkshakes. And he puts those pictures of himself on Instagram all the time just to let people know, hey... I'm not some alien. I'm, I'm a person who is weak, just like you. I was lazy. I got fat. And then I figured out how to train my mind to be disciplined. And I figured out how to be happier. And I think that that's really important for people to see that it's, right. we're not in a static state. We're all in a constant state of improvement and growth, hopefully, or deterioration if you're not careful. But does that, you know, the thing that I worry about those sometimes is similarly to economic distress. Does it make a person's health be a function of their virtue? Does it, does it take something that is beyond a lot of people's control? That isn't that a little bit of like, Hey man, if you just pull your pants up, you, you could do it. Like, no, it's are, not. It's you know what it is. On the way. I know yeah. what you're saying, but it's not. Yeah. It, it's, I did this, and I can show you how I did it, and maybe you can do it too. That's what it is. We don't have to look at every success as somehow or another thumbing in the face of people who can't achieve a, a similar goal. But, right. we, but there are enough people out there that can, that we should concentrate on that, because I think it'll have a significant improvement on the overall health of us, again, as a community. And I think this is really how we have to look at the, the, the United States and human beings on Earth in general. We have to look at each other as a bunch of people that could very well be neighbors. We're, com we're a community. And if you you're my friend and you were fat and you were willing to listen... And I used to be fat, too, and I can tell you, hey, man, this is what I did. I stopped drinking but soda. But there are, people that are, there, there are people that are, Jim, I mean, I, I understand the point there. And, and I'm, look, I'm an advocate for plant-based stuff. I think that's, it's a healthy way to do it. Uh, but obviously, eating is such a personal experience that I hesitate to ever uh, impart that in, in any other way. But I just feel like 
sometimes for people, it's almost more debilitating for that mentality of this is how you do it. You just got to get your shit together and, and go through this way. I do think you have to present more options, but know that it's maybe more complicated and people can be overweight or whatever and be healthy. It's not necessarily, uh, you know, something that's corrosive to them, but well, it is though being overweight is necessarily corrosive. It's not healthy for anybody. It's less healthy than being at an optimal weight. That's what's important. It gives you some sort of a burden. Whether that burden is sustainable is debatable. Maybe for some people it is, for some people it isn't. Look, some people can smoke until they're 90 and they're fine. Other people get pancreatic cancer like Hicks and die in their 30s. It, 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 it depends wildly on the person. But the idea that you can be fat and you can be healthy, I think, is a dangerous narrative because you're telling people... Listen, don't improve. You don't have to. You can be healthy and be obese at the same time. But the medical science does not really support that. The more weight you lose up to a certain point, you know, but when you, if you get to a healthy body mass, your body works better. It's really simple. It doesn't tax your immune system as much. It doesn't tax your heart as much. It's better for you. It's better for your joints. Um, right. It doesn't mean that we should ignore people that are overweight and you know and pr- pretend that you know that they're they're not worthy or they're not uh, right. they're not good folks. I, that's what it is. I have a very emotional yes. reaction to that because I feel protective. You're nice over people, and I I just yeah I think you're I a just sweetheart. Feel- it's great. <laughs> That's a good thing. No, it is. It's the the reason why you're thinking like this because we're talking. Right. We're talking about people doing well, and you're like, fuck, what about the people who can't do well? Let's reach out right. to them and offer them an olive branch. And yeah, I get it, man. I guess right. you're, you're right. You're right. Look, I have very good friends that are morbidly obese, and they don't want to listen, and there's nothing I can do. I just hug them when I see them, and you know, I, I hope that one day they come to grips with it and they change, but they don't have to. You, know, you, you live this life for a certain amount of time, and if you want to live it eating cake and drinking beer, that's you. You do whatever you want. We're all on the end, in the end, we're all going to be in the ground. It's all pointless. <laughs> Wait a minute. We just had an hour-long conversation about optimistically taking this country and turning it around and, and got very fatalistic all of a sudden. Well, that's true. The end, in the end, we're all dying. That's how right. the story ends. We're all dead. So the, the story, what I don't want people to do is suffer, and I want people to feel better while they're alive. And I think that's something that's missed in the message of health improvement. It's like you will actually have a better experience on earth, and it'll help you mitigate stress. It'll help you, uh, it'll help you have better relationships because you won't be burdened down with a lot of like anxiety and stress that literally comes from a physical release of energy. I look at the body like a battery, and I think that some people's batteries are just overflowing with corrosive material because they never exert it. They never blow it out. And a battery a battery's a bad analogy, but there's there's a certain amount of physical requirement I think your body has to has. And if you don't give that that body that physical exertion, it doesn't feel good. We're, we've evolved to hunt and gather and build homes and survive from predators, and we carry around all the burdens in our body of this past and there's no getting around that and you could either deny it and just deal with all the tension or you can exert your energy find some way to calm your mind and live a life that's better let me ask you a question because now this is 
I'm wondering, because you're talking about sort of evolving to a place where your body, and like when you had James on, and he was talking about plant-based, do you have moral qualms about meat, or do you not, like you said, well, you know, we're, we're hunters and, and that, like, is that ever an issue for you, or is it purely a health issue, or well, is it... There's both things. Um, there's a health issue. There is a moral qualm with factory farming. There's not a moral qualm, qualm with health, with hunting. Because uh, I know the reality of the life of a deer. If you don't kill that deer, it's going to die a horrible death from a wolf or a coyote or a mountain lion or whatever the fuck gets a hold of it. It's going to freeze to death. It's going... You can either die quickly by the hand of a person, and you will respect that life, and it will nurture your body and the bodies of your family. Our problem is a disconnection more than anything. And let me tell you something. When the COVID lockdown happened, I got more requests from friends and more requests for information about hunting and gun ownership. How do I protect myself, and how do I feed myself, and how do I grow food? Those were three really big questions that I kept getting from people. It's funny. I have such a different perspective on it in terms of just the... Um, the relationship between myself and I didn't, I was a big meat eater. I was a big like deli guy, pastrami and corned beef and all that. My wife uh, got into rescue and these types of things. And we ended up with a farm with pigs and goats and sheep and things like that. And it, it became untenable for me to make that decision. You know, that, that sort of that decision of, uh, I think you'll be better off if I kill you. And it, it became, it was something I could no longer manage once I knew the process of it. And that it was a hard, it's been a very hard process for me. It's only been about four or five years. How is your health? Um, I mean, I'm an old Jew, so baseline, pretty much, uh, we don't age well to begin with. <laughs> How old are you now, John? We age a bit like avocados when you leave them out. Um, I'm 57. I'm 52. So we're, uh, we're in similar boats. Similar boat. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, it's, it's hard to know. I feel good. You know, if you look at markers like cholesterol or blood pressure or those things, it's better. But, like you say, I don't, I don't know enough about how the body processes to know if I'm, I feel better. The numbers say I'm better, but you know, genetics. I'm sure plays a part in it as well. But the funny thing is, like, I don't even think about it anymore. Like, I just don't even think about it anymore. Well, and once was, you get into a, a, a custom, and once your gut biome changes. You know, you really get accustomed to whatever you're eating, good or bad, unfortunately. And that's one of the reasons why people have such a hard time quitting sugar and bread and pasta and things along those lines. So your body just craves it. That's what it wants. When you start and eating healthier food, your body does crave you can, that. You can go off of meat and still be incredibly unhealthy. Like, you know, you can be vegan and just exist on Lay's potato chips. Right, and, you know, yeah. Fine. So it is, you know, and, it, and it's a tougher road and the world is certainly not... Uh, it's not built for that, and it's, it certainly feels a little bit uh, of a, a narrower lane that you have to do. And I also think it's an incredibly emotional topic. Yeah. Like, very little that's as emotional and personal as what people put in their bodies and how they eat and what they do. And I'm always very respectful because I also, I got no leg to stand on, man. I, like, this is what I'm doing. It feels better for me, but I... 
I always say like, but it's such a personal and individual choice and you, everybody's got to do for themselves. The only thing I would say is like, I do think it's important for people to get educated on it, to read up on, like you say, factory farming or what might be the, you know, nutritional cost of it or what are some of the things that are in it or what maybe is it going to do to our immunity when, you know, we use so many antibiotics mm -hmm. in the meat production. I, I, the only, that's the only thing I say is like, try and educate yourself to how your meal gets to your table. That's why I'm a huge advocate for like local farming and agriculture because those are the people that are just growing their food and they're bringing it to your table. And I, I, I find that incredible. But, but I also don't, I, I try not to take a position of judgment on people because I feel like that's unfair. Well, I think like, that's very wise of you. And I think that there's a lot of people that share your position on animal death. And I think that's one of the more promising aspects of laboratory-created meat. As long as it can be done in a way that's actually going right. to be healthy for us, it seems like there's some real science behind that. And they're very, very close to releasing that on a large scale. So it would be actual meat that doesn't come with death, which is really fascinating. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. You're talking about like the, 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 the one that they had. I saw like it's a tank. And he pulls out, and it's like $20,000 for a chicken breast. That, like they did that, yeah. It was really expensive at one point in time, but they've gotten it down to a burger now. Like, they can actually make a burger out of this stuff. And um, they feel like as this it, this technology improves, they, I mean, right. essentially flesh, Which when it's not a... Would you, if, if, you could, if you could still have the, the, the part of meat that you like, but it came without death, do you think you would make that switch, or is that something that... Well, I certainly would with domestic animals. The, right. the difference between that and hunting, there's, uh, there's a conservation aspect of it. Um, right. One thing that leads to uh, protection of wildlife habitat is actually the money that comes from hunting tags and hunting equipment. Um, there's that. Uh, there's also the, the, the type of relationship you have with your food when you actually work very hard and hunt it and kill it is very different than buying food from a store. And I, I would say similar in a similar way, growing so whole food. When you go to whole foods, sometimes you really got to stop that. You know, there's, there's a lot that goes into the, the trip to whole foods. <laughs> yeah. It's hard I to find a good parking spot. That's right. Yeah, I get it. Um, growing your own food in your backyard is very satisfying too. And I, I would say to people like that's a micro, Cosm. like it's a, it's a very micro form of what it feels like to hunt an animal and then eat it and feed your family for you know if i shoot an elk i i eat it literally for a year so one animal death equals like a year of my meals and um you know there's also the moral high ground position you know i think uh, a lot of people love to look at the moral high ground of eating vegetables and only eating vegetables as being a superior way to live their life. And that's, that's a good decision. I understand where you're coming from. I understand that there's people that look at life very differently than me. They maybe don't have the sort of fatalistic perspective, even though it's respectful. I have a very fatalistic perspective when it comes to just all organic organisms competing for uh, resources and for, for life. These animals, I mean, I've run into them when they've killed each other. I've seen animals that have been taken out by other animals. I've come across their bodies torn apart by wolves in, in the woods. It's a wild, wild thing out there, man. And I think we're so insulated by it 
in the in our culture of today that it's one of the reasons why veganism and all these things are becoming so attractive. I would hope that along with that we're going to be nicer to each other, that we're going to be we're going to grow to be a, a kinder human race. I really I, I really I, hope I, that. Yeah, because I think it's it's about consideration. You know, for me I think it was there was a certain part of consciousness that I never ascribed to animals to some extent. I mean, it's funny because I always thought of myself as, oh, I, I, you know, I love animals. I, you know, I've always had dogs and cats and, you know, you find a bird with a broken wing and you stick him in a box and two weeks later he flies away and you're yep. a hero. But I never really ascribed like individuality to them. And I think that was the change for me was interacting in an, in, in an individual way. With on your farm. On the farm. Yeah. And, you know, I always did tell my mother, once, once we named them, but it's fun. <laughs> yeah. You, you watch them like they're play they'll, they'll play or they and it it just changed my relationship to what I wanted it to be with animals. And it, it, it just made it untenable in that moment for me. But I truly understand like that that is an uh, a really individualized, personalized experience that 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 I made and like I say, I would love it for people to make that connection because I think it's profound. There is there is something about that connection for people that when they do see it, you know, it's funny, I'll talk about the pigs and they'll be like, uh, what you know, what do they just eat everything? You're like, no, they're really playful, they're smart. They're like know, dogs. You, have, you do belly rubs. Yeah, it's it's but that was shocking to me. I didn't know that. Well, I just thought, oh, it's like a blob. Again, beings. We're talking not about human. nature, John, and yeah. there's nothing natural about a farm. That's part of the problem. I mean, it's all—it's an animal prison, and they're domesticated because we give them food, and we kind of remove the the natural fear that they would have of any, you know, f eyeball facing forward predator, which is what we are. Um, you know what's interesting about too their health, like what having our farm with sheep and goats and and pigs, and, and they're all rescues is like having a nursing home. Like, you can't believe the fragility of factory-farmed animals. Like, they mm. are to be sick. Like, pneumonia. Uh, like, genetically designed to gain too much weight for their mm -hmm. legs. It really is, you know, the island of Misfit Like, they, they've genetically modified or done whatever they've done. And, and the health of these animals that are in our food supply yeah. that are mainstay of our food supply is really suspect yeah that's so, why nursing home yeah that's why i prefer hunting the when if you're eating an animal that's a wild animal you're eating an athlete i mean they're they're sinewy and thick and they're strong oh, and, and right, oh, they've right, survived oh. and they're so much more nutrient dense when you're when you're talking about factory farmed animals, you're talking about. I mean, well, factory farmed animals is the worst version of what human beings are capable of. That we're capable of ignoring suffering to the point where we lock them all in warehouses. Their piss goes down in a tunnel and fills a small lake up. And they've flown right. over these places with drones. It's horrific, right? The pig farms in particular, they're horrific. But when you're talking about what you're doing on your farm, like of course you can't eat those things. They're your pets. That would be, I mean, you're, you're naming them and feeding them and touching them. But I extrapolate that now. So mm -hmm. I, I think what happened was I went, oh, right. That's in the same way that, like, I love my dog. But if you have a dog, I wouldn't kill your dog and you right. eat 
because I look at dogs now in a different way. So I think I extrapolate to the, the animal kingdom in a way, a different, I have it. I feel like because of my wife and she's been, she's a, a much kinder, smarter version of me. So, uh, because of her kind of showing me that relationship and experiencing myself, like it's just changed the way that I view it. And mm. that's been, and, and it kind of takes us back around to the earlier part of the conversation. Cause when you think about animal agriculture and you talk about those hog farms, where are they located? They're located in the poorest neighborhoods. Right. They locate and the environmental damage that they do is also damage that's done to poor rural communities. Right that live around them. Now I'm not suggesting that there's not economic, there's an economic incentive and and an industry around it. And certainly not, you know, you don't just end industries, but reform again, like it, it, it's sort of like, uh, George P. Bush said this, he was talking about Donald Trump. He goes, I'm going to support Donald Trump because Donald Trump is the only thing standing between America and socialism. (laughs) <laughs> and I was like, the only thing standing between America and socialism is an inability to meaningfully reform capitalism and its more damaging effects. And if we can't do that, then the people take to the streets. I think reform, like Bernie was talking about and those other guys, that will save capitalism. That will save democracy by showing that we recognize that there is collateral damage to the systems that we use to gain wealth and to gain power. And if we can reform those systems meaningfully for the people who suffer most terribly under them, we save it. But if we can't, the Bastille gets stormed. Like that's just what Kennedy say. If you make peaceful evolution impossible, you make violent revolution inevitable. Yeah. So we, I think at some point we have to demonstrate the will and the stamina to be able to attack these problems. And that's why I'm voting Joe Rogan. <laughs> yeah, no, I think everyone agrees, but everyone feels like their hands are tied. And again, I think that's one of the reasons why these protests and just this this whole explosion after George Floyd has been so transformative. I think because people recognize like this is a, a real moment of change. And of course, opportunists and looters and all kinds of other crazy shit happened along the way. But it's it it speaks to the fact that there's so many people in the street. It speaks it speaks to this this like we can actually do something now. We've got momentum. Let's keep it moving. Are you hopeful? Yes, I'm always hopeful. I'm very optimistic, even though I have a fatalistic perspective. Exact same. People yeah. say to me, in these terrible times, how do you remain hopeful? And I'm like, because better people outnumber shitty people. Yes. I have a long shot. They do. It's just, that's just the truth. They really sometimes do. We're powerless. Sometimes we may uh, act out of fear or resource, guard, whatever that is, but better people outnumber shitty people by a long shot. And we're in an adolescent stage of our evolution of as a civilization. It's growing and changing. There's never been a civilization like us today, and we're growing and changing to try to suit our real sensibilities and to try to to try to get better at this fucking thing and and not just accept this old crazy corrupt structure that's existed forever. Thank you. You know, you've put a little fire in my belly. Good. Like this. Beautiful. You know, I've been kind of around doing the thing, but like. Uh, I've, I've really enjoyed 
Uh, I've really enjoyed the conversation. Listen, uh, man, I always enjoy talking to you. I appreciate you very much. And I don't get to see you enough. All right, my friend. And uh, hopefully when this all ends, uh, everybody can gather again at the you know, at the store and have, do a good set and, and talk some shit with each other and have some fun. Let's do it, brother. Right, Take care, man. my friend, and good luck with your film. Irresistible is oh. out when? Yeah. Now? Uh, tomorrow. Tomorrow. I'll yeah, watch yeah. it. Oh, John Stewart, you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, my brother. Thank you, sir. Bye. Bye-bye.